The following content is explicit. Hello, Slate Podcast listeners. I'm here to remind you to take the Slate survey. It will be open through April 1st, and your answers help us make a better Slate. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com survey. It's Friday, March 20th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In a press conference today, President Trump was asked about the promise of the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine in treating COVID-19. Let us for a second, though, ponder that sentence. Slightly more complex mechanisms at play than let's build a wall. Anyway, Trump described himself as more of a fan of the drug than maybe anybody and then called infectious disease expert Anthony Fauci up onto the stage to back him up on the idea that hydroxychloroquine was fairly effective against SARS. John, you've got to be careful when you say fairly effective. It was never done in a clinical trial. They compared it to anything. But the president recapped the remarks by emphasizing his optimism. I am a man that comes from a very positive school when it comes to, in particular, one of these drugs. So having processed that and perhaps experiencing some cognitive dissonance in the fact that the president expressed optimism, but the actual expert expressed caution, NBC's Pete Alexander asked the following question. Is it possible that your impulse to put a positive spin on things may be giving Americans a false sense of hope? No, I don't think so. The I don't preparedness think so. right now. No, I don't think so. I think that, uh, I think it's got, you know, the not yet approved drug. I mean, such a lovely question. Um, look, it may work and it may not work. And I agree with the doctor what he said. May work, may not work. Uh, I feel good about it. That's all it is, just a feeling. I, you know, I'm a smart guy. I feel good about it. And we're going to see. Trump summed up his remarks with a bit more hope. We have nothing to lose. You know the expression? What the hell do you have to lose? Huh. Actually, that does not seem to be the best way to comfort a frightened country. But the president wasn't done. Okay. So what do you say to the Americans who are scared, though? I guess nearly 200 dead, 14,000 who are sick, millions, as you witness, who are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. I think it's a very nasty question, and I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. The American people are looking for answers and they're looking for hope. And you're doing sensationalism and uh, the same with NBC and Concast. I don't call it, I don't call it Comcast, I call it Concast. Let me just tell for whom you work. Let me just tell you something. That's really bad reporting. And you ought to get back to reporting instead of sensationalism. Let's see if it works. It might and it might not. I happen to feel good about it, but who knows? I've been right a lot. Other reporters? followed up asking him if it was appropriate to lash out like that on a reporter who's just channeling the concerns of many frightened people. Trump said this. And I think Peter is uh, not a good journalist when it comes to fairness. But he's asking for your message to the country. Oh, I think it's a good message because I think that the country has to understand that there is indeed, whether we like it or not, and some of the people in this room won't like it, uh, there's a lot of really great news and great journalism, and there's a lot of fake news out there. Things calmed down a little. Mike Pence was asked the exact same question, what would you say to frighten people, by the exact same reporter. And his answer emphasized the word vigilance as opposed to consisting of a critique of the questioner's professional abilities. And eventually, President Trump left the briefing room with these words. 
And we're very proud of what we've done. It's incredible what we've done. And this system will now serve for the future, for future problems. Hopefully you don't have a problem like this, but something will come up. We have now a great system. And it's almost fully in gear, but it's able to test millions of people. But we inherited a broken, old, uh, frankly, a terrible system. We fixed it. And we've done a great job. And we haven't been given the credit that we deserve. That I can tell you. But yes, because the only thing we have to fear is fear of not getting enough credit. This guy, this guy at this time in this office, I don't know. Maybe Trump should have gone into the priesthood. Father, forgive me for I have sinned. It has been a week since my last confession. But Father, I'm out of work. I broke my back and now my babies have no food. I don't want to lose faith, but what can the Lord say unto me? He can say, you're a terrible dad, terrible provider. Bricklayer? I call you brick lamer. Or maybe Trump could have been an animal expert, like on a radio show. Hi, we're here with Dr. Don for all your pet needs. Jim's calling in from Muskegon. What's your problem, Jim? Yeah, hi, my cat, Commodore Purry, has terrible separation anxiety, and he pees on the hardwood floor whenever he misses me. What would you tell me or Commodore Purry? I'd say he's a terrible cat. Dishonest, fake cat, fake cat. I had high hopes for catnip. You say it doesn't work. I say, why not try? Again, terrible cat. Oh, it'd be funny if it wasn't so goddamn sad. That this is the American president, but also that this is the president that so many Americans wanted and still want. I've thought of that old expression. It goes like this. We have so much to lose. On the show today, a check-in with two medical experts who might have the biggest platforms in America. See if you can identify, for instance, this voice. Everything is an emergency. People that are infectious disease specialists, the CDC, the epidemiologists, need to take this very seriously. The press needs to shut up. That is Dr. Drew Pinsky speaking on March 6th. Oh, and he's not the worst offender. But first, our current president is less inclined to fireside chats than flame wars. Jonathan Alter is here to discuss what Trump's comportment says about his future and ours. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. 
Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Two of the three most populous states in the country have been ordered by their governors to hunker down, shelter in place, self-isolate. And of course, the governors have to take the lead because at the top, the president is essentially saying, oh, that's more the governor's job. Now, I have to tell you, a couple weeks ago, I said the primaries are going to be hitting. Maybe we'll come to a decision. Let's just book all the smartest political people we can to talk about politics. And so we did. But politics have changed tremendously. But Jonathan Alter was still right there on the schedule. And I said, ooh, I need to get his opinion on this moment. The MSNBC contributor and Daily Beast columnist is also the author of books about Obama and FDR. His FDR book is called The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope. Hi, thanks for joining me, Jonathan. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So I always thought that the leadership playbook was this. If there's a potential crisis, take ownership. You shouldn't let it go to waste. (laughs) This isn't even to help the populace. It's to help yourself as the politician. If any politician thinks a disaster is impending, what you should do is take it as seriously as you can. Always take it more seriously rather than less seriously. It will always reflect well upon you. Why isn't Donald Trump playing from that playbook? Well, first of all, um, the line, a crisis is a terrible thing to go to waste. Uh, The first time I heard that was from Rahm Emanuel right after the 2008 presidential election when We were in a lot of trouble in this country, and we were in the middle of the worst quarter in American history, even worse than the uh, fourth quarter of 1930, which was the bottom of the Depression. And this was even worse. And, you know, Rahm Emanuel's point was this gives Barack Obama, the incoming president, a real opportunity. So this came at a different time in the cycle than either the banking crisis of 1933 when Roosevelt became president or the financial crisis of 2008 when Obama became president. This was three years into Trump's presidency. He has given no thought to the elements of presidential leadership. His idea of a leader is Vladimir Putin. He has a strongman view of leadership, which is about pushing people around, stigmatizing the opposition, finding scapegoats. So now he's calling it the Chinese virus. And the idea of actually using it to enhance his own prestige and and power as president, in some ways, I think it didn't really even occur to him in January because his whole game plan for getting reelected was to have a strong stock market. And so when this coronavirus comes along, the first thing that he wants to do is just sweep it under the carpet because he doesn't want anything getting in the way. And the most vivid illustration of that was when there was the cruise ship offshore. And he said, well, he doesn't want him to come on shore because it would hurt his numbers. 
you know, and it would make him look worse. First of all, he never thinks beyond the next news cycle, but his head was not really around how to be a crisis leader, and he has none of the tools right. that you need for effective crisis leadership. Well, you know, you talk about he thinks he's a strong man or acts like a strong man. If he were a, a truly strong man, as in uh, a competent autocrat or dictator, that might be helpful. I mean, look at Singapore. That is not a free and open society, but they dealt with this well, to some extent, probably because they are led by an autocrat. I mean, like I don't have to tell you, when FDR was elected and the word dictator didn't have these negative connotations, in those terrible times, that's the sort of actions that people were looking for, even from FDR, to be an actual strong man. No, 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 that's not quite true. I mean, this is what a lot of my book is about. You're quite right that dictator had a positive connotation and Studebaker had a car called the dictator that was pretty popular. <laughs> and and the New York Daily News ran a big headline, wanted a dictator. And Mussolini was very popular in the United States, but um, Roosevelt did not send a delegation to learn from him. Roosevelt knew what he needed to do and did it when he came in as as president. Um, but, you know, you mentioned that word competence. And, um, you know, Trump is, is a toxic combination of malevolence and incompetence. So he doesn't know what he is doing. He doesn't understand government. He never served in government. He's the first president who never served in government at any level. He could have made up for that if he was a curious person who read and tried to learn the job of president, but of course he did none of that. So he was flying blind, he was demanding loyalty, and I think eventually we're gonna find out that the reason that these, one reason that these tests never took place beyond the fact that the first CDC test failed was that the strong message coming from the top was we don't want testing because that will make it seem like this is a bigger problem than we want it to be. When everybody knows the president feels that way, it's really hard to get the bureaucracy moving. And also everybody knows that he just wants yes men and kiss asses around him. So if you say to him, Mr. President, you know, this is a really big problem and we need to prepare the American public for this, he would have just brushed them off. And I'm sure when memoirs are written, we'll find out that a lot of that happened because that's the way things have played out on on other stories with this administration. But basically, he has none of what you need to actually be an effective leader, whether you're a strong man or the leader of a democratic nation. You know, you need to be able to communicate effectively that you have a handle on what's going on but that you are also not engaged in happy talk and not sugarcoating. So an effective leader, and I think that Andrew Cuomo is showing how to do this right now in New York State, his language has a kind of perfect pitch for balancing, preparing people for the worst and giving them confidence that if the situation is not yet under control, there is at least a plan of action. So language is the first thing. The second element of leadership is some kind of human connection. 
which Roosevelt established in the first fireside chat when, you know, there had been all these terrible bank runs, devastating. Everybody was pulling their money out of the banks and we were on a barter system in this country. The banks were all closed and we had this, you know, even more panic than we do today. Uh, And Roosevelt's reassuring, perfectly pitched fireside chat you know, he said to the American people, hoarding has become a very unfashionable pastime. Go out and deposit your, redeposit your money, take it out from under the mattresses and put it into banks as we reopen them under our plan. And people did this. So that they, they did exactly what he asked because he had established this human connection with them right after he became president. This is within a week of his becoming president. So, and then he continued to do that um, throughout. Then the third thing is you have to know how to use the levers of government to help people. And when you've been running, uh, when you're the president and the candidate of a political party that has been running down government for 40 years, you know, uh, singing to Grover Norquist's tune, which is we want to reduce government so far, make it so small that it can be strangled in a bathtub. If that's your attitude toward government and you run down the deep state, you run down all the people who work under you in the executive branch, you run down the civil service, then you're, when the shit hits the fan, you're not really going to have any idea of what to do about it because you don't understand the executive department that you had. So we started off by you noting that all he really cared about was the stock market because his theory, such as it was of the of the election, is if the economy strong, he'd get credit. And you know, that is true in normal times with a normal person, a normal incumbent with this economy would be skating to re-election. So now that the economy is going south, can we still say that in a totally different way, perhaps the normal rules don't apply? He was underwater in terms of approval, and I don't know if he's going to be better. If he was an incumbent during a good economy who was very endangered of not being elected, now that he has this bad economy, but people will credit it to an outside force, the virus, maybe he has a better chance than an incumbent normally would given these economic conditions. Maybe, and I think it's really hazardous to make predictions about a November election in March. And so I'm not saying he will be defeated. He could, you know, bring up his game so much that people uh, don't want to change horses in the middle of a stream. You know, wartime presidents usually get reelected and he's cleverly defining this as a war, which in many ways it is. So, you know, he has that going for him. But it's too early for Democrats to really go after him on this the way I am right now. But they will have a lot of ammunition in the fall on this issue. They'll have a lot to work with. Now, I think to your scenario, what could work for him is if because the expectations have been set so low, you know, that, that, that there are going to be these, you know, tens of thousands of people dying, maybe even hundreds of thousands. And that, you know, Mnuchin said the other day that unemployment could go to 20%, which I don't think is going to happen. So if, you know, in the third quarter, the economy seems to be 
like a rocket, he said, you know, and pent up demand brings things roaring back, then he could say, look, you know, what happened in March was not my fault. And I've presided over a generally really good economy and, and could get reelected. So yes, that can happen, but it's it's very hard to predict. And I don't think a lot of people are looking to him to get us through this emotionally. So that's something that he's already lost. I cannot help but concluding that so much of this will depend on, as much as I hate to say it, and as crass as it seems, it will depend on the death toll. Because if things work out and our, our recovery, our handling of this starts looking more like South Korea and less like Italy, then the people who are want to excuse Trump might say something like, oh, I guess he wasn't that far off when he was less dire than the media, or at least they won't punish him so, so much. Those ads where he downplays the toll, I mean, if tens of thousands of people die, they have one valence. If it's hundreds of people, they have a different valence. And I'm, of course, rooting for as many people to have a good outcome, as few deaths as possible. But I do also think it's going to be highly correlated by what really happens with this disease. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I hope that uh, we do respond successfully to this and can keep the death toll down. And I think because we have less density in this country than they do in Italy, and we have a younger population, we might be able to do that. You're right that that would, in some sense, that that could help President Trump, because as I said, you know, the expectations now are so bad that he could clear a, a relatively low bar and, you know, might even be able to say, well, this has killed a lot fewer people than uh, the flu does every year, which is where he started the conversation. But I, I, I still don't think that that you know, means that uh, he rides that all the way to re-election, because I think the American people understand that that is a collective effort, that there was a lot of leadership shown by governors and by the American public and I'm not sure that everybody is going to credit that to his account if we are fortunate enough to have a lower death toll than expected. Jonathan Alter is an MSNBC analyst, a Daily Beast columnist, the author of The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days in the Triumph of Hope, and also an Obama book, The Center Holds, Obama and His Enemies. Thanks so much, John. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. And now the spiel. Two weekends ago, Sirius Satellite Radio dedicated an entire channel to discussing the coronavirus. Hosted by Dr. Mark Siegel of the NYU Langone Medical Center, the talk was about how viruses work, how viruses spread, and what we could do. No facts were misstated, and the question in the air was clearly, how much should we worry? And the answer was, maybe just a little bit. Here's Dr. Paul Offit offering his opinions on the virus. And people are treating this like it's a viral apocalypse, and I don't see it. I don't understand. Dr. Siegel agreed. At one point, he asked another doctor about the concern over the virus this way. Do you agree with that a lot of the social disruption that's going on at this point is based on hysteria and overreaction that rather than a necessary public health intervention? 
Now, I was never blasé about the virus, but upon listening to Dr. Radio for a few hours as I drove to New Jersey and back, I became reassured. I mean, these were highly credentialed medical experts. I'm a bit of a credentialist. But out of curiosity, or in truth, actually wondering if I could book Dr. Siegel for the gist, I researched him a little bit and found out about his background. He is a Fox News contributor. Uh Uh-oh. He frequently appears on Fox and Friends and Tucker Carlson. And then I began to monitor Dr. Siegel's other media appearances. I was a little shocked by what I heard from this professor of medicine at NYU School of Medicine. Here he was speaking to Lou Dobbs back on February 20th. Are you impressed by that, uh, the number of Americans who've got that much confidence in the Trump administration? Absolutely, Lou. I think that the task force that the president put together and his leadership on this has been tremendous. Dobbs agreed. I think it's being managed well. The results speak for themselves. Even as the virus spread out of Wuhan and we saw the outbreak on the Diamond Princess, Dr. Siegel was appearing on Fox, downplaying the severity of COVID-19 and praising the president. This is from March 6th. I'll test the flu. I'll test the coronavirus to calm fears. And people are going to start to get the idea that it's not that widespread. That was when there was 319 cases in the U.S. Here he was two days later. I feel like the more I learn about this, the less there is to worry about. I was about to say the same thing. I really agree. By then, there were 541 U.S. cases. In between, he made this claim on Fox News, which turned out to be false. We're going to have millions of test kits available next week. and I'll... About the same time that Dr. Siegel was characterizing the concern over the virus as more concerning than the virus, Dr. Drew Pinsky was going even further. That means that it's far milder than we know it is. And there are people walking around out there with the virus that don't even know they have it. It's so mild. That was him on February 27th. This is an overblown press-created hysteria. Five days later, Dr. Drew, as reality show and Loveline fans know him, went on his old radio partner, Adam Carolla's podcast. So uh, so disturbed by the press. I'm general. so angry with them. Pinsky, who is an addiction specialist, best known for his role in celebrity rehab, is a licensed clinician. He sees patients. He's also testified before Congress on issues of diseases related to homelessness. And he's toyed with running for Congress, actually in the seat currently filled by Adam Schiff. On the Corolla show, he flat out told the media, stay out of Corona coverage. In Pinsky's telling, it was irresponsible to be frightened of the novel coronavirus when the flu, influenza, is far deadlier, a fact that is now pretty much seen as unremarkable. The the reporting should be 40 million people with flu-like illnesses, 280,000 hospitalized, 16,000 dead, get your damn flu shot. So far, three dead with the coronavirus. Right. Three. Three versus 16,000. Which should we be worried about? The flu? And well, once we're, and once we're yes. able to detect how widespread this virus actually is, the fatality rate will start to drop. The fatality rate will drop, but as has happened, the fatality numbers will rise. There are, of course, examples of excessively scary specific reports with every news event Local news is founded on hype. They do want to make the world seem more dangerous than it is. But, you know, sometimes the actual world is pretty dangerous. Meanwhile, as Dr. Drew was laying into the media, Dr. Siegel was using that slice of it called Fox News to continue to perpetuate an attitude that I'll call at least out of step with the vast majority of the infectious disease community. 
This was from March 14th, so less than a week ago. The NBA had shut down three days prior to give you some idea about the time period we're talking about. And Fox host Janine Pirro had Dr. Siegel on to read some viewer questions. We have been told that the upcoming warm weather in the U.S. will kill the virus as it can't take warm weather, uh, warm temperatures. So why is it spreading now in tropical areas where it's hot every day and every night? Now, the standard answer to that is we don't know. Some viruses act the way that he describes. Some viruses do act in that way. That's why President Trump said it will be gone by April. But some viruses don't. Let's see how Siegel answered. First of all, it is not spreading in places like Africa right now. South America, there's not a lot of cases. There isn't a lot of cases in Australia right now. There's about 200. There's, it, we're seeing it mostly in areas where it's not their summer right now. But to answer his question, high humidity and heat and a lot of ultraviolet light are conditions that most viruses, respiratory viruses, most, including coronaviruses, do not do well in. So we're hoping for a seasonal change here when we get to the warmer so weather. So high humidity. Okay, just as a counterpoint, as of this recording in Malaysia, there are 1,030 cases. That is up from 673 a day ago and 553 the day before that. Now, over the past 10 days in Kuala Lumpur, the capital of Malaysia, the average high temperature was 96 degrees. Janine Pirro asked her second question. Is it okay to have family visit my 73-year-old healthy mom at her home? I would say so, provided that they're careful and that they're not sick and that they do the kind of social distancing we're talking about here. Can they hug grandma? Well, uh, let's do an elbow bump with grandma. <laughs> but sure, I mean, the point is, let's not go completely overboard. You got to see grandma. If she's healthy, do. she doesn't have emphysema. She's healthy. You're healthy. You yeah. don't go there sick. You don't cough yeah. on her. We this is not in alignment with the best practices expressed by most experts. Dangerously so. Let's contrast that with MSNBC's medical expert who answered a question about a person visiting their elderly relatives. Um, people are concerned that it's going to get worse and they wonder if now is a good time to visit their parents. Um, but the short answer is I just wouldn't. All right. Back to Dr. Siegel on Fox. This was we heard the first two questions he was asked. He was here was the third question he was asked. Can you get the virus more than once? Which is kind of a follow up to what I said. You know, even if you test negative, can you get it? Now they want to know if you can get it again. I don't think so. Most of the time, you're going to develop an immunity from this virus. Most of the time. Because the strains look like they're very narrowly different. We don't have a bunch of different strains out there yet like we have with the flu. So if you've had it, you may have a cycle where you think you're over it and then you get sick again. That's what we're seeing, a recurrence of symptoms. But then when you're cured, you're cured. I did a little research. I didn't see any other experts who expressed that level of certainty. I mean, they're simply not sure. Puro, however, was in a different camp, not comprehending the concept at all. Okay, so you're not going to get that one unless Almost there's definitely a strain. Not. Almost definitely not. Okay, but if you, how do you get cured? There still isn't a cure. We went through this in the last... No, segment. no, no, but having had the infection or having been exposed to it, you are going to develop an immunity after you've had the, oh, after you've had the disease. Okay, oh, that's fabulous. And that's hopeful because that will spread immunity around hopeful. the community. Oh, that's that wonderful. I haven't time. heard that. Because no one's saying that, not so definitively. Rachel Graham, an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Gilling School of Global Health at the University of UNC Chapel Hill, says, quote, it's too early to tell what kind of immune response people are amounting to this virus and if they're able to produce the proper kinds of antibodies that would neutralize a subsequent 
infection. In other words, we hope that'll happen. We don't know. Here's the final question Janine Pirro put to Siegel. Can you go to the gym? Can you go to spin class? I mean, what's safe? I'm still going to the gym. Now, again, that was March 14th. And I would like to note that I, Mike Pesca, least paranoid guy you've ever met, stopped going to the gym on March 11th or 12th. Dr. Siegel and Dr. Drew have more medical expertise than I do. Put another way, they have medical expertise. And I did reach out to Dr. Siegel for comment. I'll relay that to you if he gets back to me. But in terms of communicating with the public, it's alarming to hear opinions that are so out of step with what the vast majority of other experts say. And unlike most cases where Fox News propaganda infects just a specific population and can be more or less contained on election day, this is another type of disinformation. It's less willful, it's less by design, and it's more based on unearned confidence. It's not that Mark Siegel isn't an expert, it's just that he's a specific kind of expert. Perhaps it's that Fox News, in picking its experts, only allowed itself to draw from the pool eager to cheerlead Donald Trump. But the weird thing is that's not NYU Langone Medical Center's play. For whatever reason, a couple of the doctors with the country's biggest megaphones are at best being unhelpful and at worst being incorrect on the one topic where a difference of opinion can be the difference between life and death. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST associate producer. She has a message for everyone out there who ever had a dream. You're hogging the covers terrible. Daniel Schrader is the GIST producer. What would he say to his 10-year-old self? He'd probably say, what are you doing on the phone with a 30-year-old man from Brooklyn? That is not right. The GIST. I hope you like the credits because they are tremendous and no one gives them credit. Give the credits credit. Oomperu depperu duperu and thanks for listening.